0: Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the Cyber Theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. I'm Steve King, the Managing Director at Cyber Theory. Uh, today's episode is going to focus on identity access management and zero trust. Joining me today is Richard Byrd, the Chief Customer Information Officer for Ping Identity. Richard's a well-known identity-centric security expert, a former CISO and CIO. In addition, Richard served as the global head of identity for JP. Morgan Chase's consumer businesses, and he's a sought-after speaker around the world, having spoken and presented several hundred times over the last five years. In addition, he's a Forbes Tech council member and has appeared frequently in The Wall Street Journal, CNBC, Bloomberg, The Financial Times. Business Insider, and CNN on topics ranging from data protection regulations to cybersecurity-enabled consumer protection. So welcome, Richard. I'm glad you could join me today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I truly appreciate it.
0: Sure. So let's talk about Ping a bit first. What is it exactly that the Chief Customer Information Officer does, and (laughs) how, how does the Ping IAM solution differ from everybody else's?
1: Sure. Well, I, you know, the chief customer information officer title, I, I think for the remaining years of my life will always make me chuckle. It's a great role. I, I'm a member of the operating team. I am a functional C officer. The position actually resulted as a result of building a, a friendship with the CEO and founder of Ping, Andre Durand. He had seen me, I come out of the corporate sector uh, after 20 plus years being an operator my view and observations on all things identity all things data privacy tends to skew to the operator's seat you know what it's like to actually run it as opposed to the standards and the the details of how we get to there you know like, like i said the other day to somebody you know i talk with customers all the time who their reality is they still haven't hygiene their active directory And folks like us are out talking about digital identity. It's like, um, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, a lot of my role is customer facing, obviously, you know, it's in the title. Uh, I spend about 30% or so of my time with customers, um, not just ours, you know, prospective customers, as well as, you know, folks out in the world that are dealing with really large, hairy strategic challenges with uh, their identity-centric approaches to security. I spent about 30% of my time on on platforms, unfortunately, on Zoom, you know, keynote presentations, discussions, leading uh, a great example, going to be leading a digital identity summit at Identiverse um, with my uh, friends and colleagues, Jeremy Grant and Andy Hindle. So I get to do that kind of stuff, which is really the, that's the dream state stuff that uh, all of my former colleagues and friends go, you have the best job in the world. They think that's pretty much all that I do, which is only (laughs) about a third. Another third of my time is really getting deep into a space that I didn't when I was an operator, which is all of the issues around standards, all of the issues around changes to Customer expectations that are being facilitated by open banking PSD2, consumer data right down Australia. I interact with government agencies and think tank organizations across five continents pretty much on a weekly basis. I love that part of my job because it's very intellectually stimulating. Um, and the other 10% of my job is, you know, doing what a what an executive officer needs to do, annual plans, you know, budgets, all that kind of stuff. It's a very rewarding job, especially you know, f- from my perspective, having dug ditches for a long time in my career, not just in information security, been a multi-security uh, domain, control domain uh, uh, CISO, but in uh, my uh, experiences in IT operations, I'm an old middle office, back office banking guy. And I take those operational perspectives from that part of my career and apply them to the information security space which I think we'll get into a little bit today as it relates to you know, some things that I think are surfacing relative to identity-centric security and zero trust. Ping is a fascinating company. I always tell people, like, the identity community is small. I had a choice of companies to go to work for, obviously, and I chose Ping, and Ping chose me. And the reason that I did that is because you know the CEO and founder, first of all, is a tremendously inspirational guy. There's an argument to be made that he's the godfather. Of modern identity, you know, starting out with the early days of SSL federation when, you know, we were all struggling to do it, you know, in, in Windows OS uh, shops, um, and we couldn't get, you know, Microsoft to put the pedal to the gas to go faster in that space, It's obviously morphed and changed over time to grow with the customer demand. So I think the big differentiator, Andre said it best. I think who name was on Kramer. The big differentiator for Ping uh, solution buyers is is a more sophisticated set of buyers. That was his quote. I thought it was great because it's a nice way to acknowledge something that we don't like to acknowledge anymore in this cloudified world, which is large enterprises will eternally be hybrid. Last I checked, they have cloud, but they're also still running mainframe and midranges. That complexity doesn't easily bend towards the notion of an easy button. Large enterprises know this, right? It doesn't stop everybody in the market from advertising and marketing you know, that uh, you know, choose our solution and it's super easy and we can make your life simpler because I think that's a huge disrespect to you know, the largest companies in the world because they don't have the convenience of easy. They have too many regulatory demands. They have too many problems that are tied to their legacy debt. There's an interesting diversification of infra- infrastructure and application deployment methods that isn't gonna stop. I mean, we have people talking about multi-cloud implementations and it's three clouds. I anticipate in the next five years, they're going to be talking about five or six, right? And none of those cloud platforms actually play well together, um, which has huge implications for us in in identity centric security. You know, that's, you know, ping's differentiator certainly is its history and its its culture and its its longevity in the space. It's just cool to see, you know, the kind of high fives that you get from customers as say it never goes down. You know, we go to sleep at night knowing we're never going to have to worry about, you know, pink solutions. That kind of credibility is hard to come by in the market today. And that's why I love it. I love this company a lot.
0: Yeah, sure. You know, and to have an insight like that from a guy like Kramer, who, you know, isn't part of the community. And then you're you're crowded with folks on the sidelines carping about how. Big companies uh, contribute to the problem or it should be so easy to get from here to there. I don't understand. What they're <laughs> yeah. yeah, You and I have discussed zero trust with regard to identity access. I think it's uh, fair to say that identity is the new perimeter. How deeply do the access controls in your mind need to go for applications and data? Yeah,
1: boy, I'm going to tell you such an interesting question you know, you and I had shared, I mean, I, I think I remember seeing John Kindervag my first time in person, probably six years ago. And at the time it was before the beyond corp, uh, white paper had dropped well before. And I, I remember listening to him and having been a CISO, um, and having had responsibility for all of the different, you know, components of threat and vulnerability management and network security and everything. I was like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Right. But You know, as we kind of roll forward, there are some real operational problems that the Zero Trust framework has currently has. And this is what I think you and I were talking about. Like Zero Trust can't be it. And and Zero Trust will have a a demand against it to either evolve or simply go into the dustbin of the last set of efforts for a functioning framework, right? Uh, And you and I have been around the block a long time. We've seen a lot of different frameworks, right? As we look at the identity-centric space specifically and and extending controls into applications, the one problem that never gets acknowledged is is that we're seeing a repeat of a pattern. So 20 years ago, authentication was in the wild. like Every application negotiated, developed, and coded their own authentication layer. And it was bad. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Right. And and what did we do? We you know we we as either either homegrown or through solutions uh, providers, uh, we moved down the path of uh, SSO federation. We moved down the path of uh, aggregating you know uh, accounts in a fashion that gave us better security. Probably more you know to the business point, it gave less friction for employees to get online and get their workday started. Yeah. And we did a great job, right? We moved everything. Well, not everything. <laughs> we moved a lot of stuff into authentication as a service. And unfortunately, what we did, especially going back about a dozen years ago, is we said, look, we don't have time budget, you know, you know, resources within information security to handle the authorization layer. So, application developers go forth and conquer. Put all the authorization logic into your applications. And here we are. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. And the real problem is is that the power is becoming very, very clear. The power at, at doing everything from differentiating customer experiences once they are uh, authenticated and acknowledged as being who they say they are to you know routing resources by even job function or title to the correct resources and assets is that magic happens in the authorization layer. And the authorization layer functionally isn't accounted for within zero trust um, because it is an app dominant perspective, right? And, and so it, it is all the machinery inside of an application that's making these authorization logic calls. And the challenge is, is that you could do everything right in the zero trust framework and you're still going to see app executed breaches, right? Because the the extension of the zero trust network orientation does not have a corollary within the application space right and this is this has been consistent throughout you know it history right like um you know application i i say this all the time application developers are 10 years ahead of every security control this becomes part of our problem you start talking yeah you start talking about security frameworks with application developers and um, if they don't shoot you, uh, they'll just simply walk out the door because they're right, they're not right. they're not oriented to that perspective.
0: Uh, J- Jeremy continues to say that, you know, we're we're kind of better at authentication, but we still suck at, at pro- identity <laughs> proofing. Right? Yeah.
1: yeah, I think the proofing piece is going to close relatively quickly. You may have seen the EU commission dropped paper yeah. yesterday. Right. All of a sudden. Here's my concern. All, all, all of a sudden. Digital identity is not just a thing. Digital identity is big. I saw somebody, I mean, I'm like you. I get 150 emails, cold emails a day from different companies trying to get right. a call with me, right? There was one that popped from a solutions provider just this morning that said something, something, something digital identity. And I was like, oh, Lord, right? Here we go. <laughs> right. Mark, marketing banner, like, it, you know, or RSA, time before the last everybody's banner whether they were actually in the business or not was zero trust yep yep right and so you know the the concern here around around this move and motion like you said and verification is is that um, we get lost in the muck of a a marketing campaign where this notion of personal identity, Wallets or whatever you know type of wallet type uh, solution is actually putting verifiable credentials into the human beings' hands. That's what has to happen, right? The verifiable credentials that are out there in the digital space have no ownership by the people that they're actually associated to, and it's the worst thing that we ever did. What's the old saying? Uh, the cleverest trick the devil ever pulled. You know, we we built an entire digital universe and we completely forgot about empowering the people that are associated with using it and in doing that we've now found ourselves in in this enormous hole right relative to uh, breaches exploits hacks and then damages to individual human beings right i mean the these damages are no longer within the realm of white collar crime i mean there there is destruction of property people's livelihoods you know human emotions engaged in this and and we built ourselves into this place.
0: Yeah, no kidding. And I, you know, we're going to see more and more of that, un- unfortunately, as uh, 5G rolls around and IoT continues to get spotlighted. So and the nation state adversaries are having a lot of fun with that, apparently. From a multi-factor authentication point of view, you know, it, it seems to me that we got. I know folks like community banks in Illinois who refuse to adopt even a a two factor authentication approach because you know they, they they don't want to impose any more friction on the interactions between them and their customers. But I, until we get away from passwords, it's going to be hard to get a zero trust strategy in place. Right? How, how much of a role is behavior analytics playing in in detecting identity fraud today? I mean, it's one of those "it depends" type of of
1: responses, right? In the space of large enterprises and government organizations that uh, have, you know, more budget available than most countries' GDP, right? <laughs> yeah. um, we do see a lot of higher tier development going on in the aggregation of single signals about the individual, right? So what we're seeing in the in, in this space of all of these different data points being pulled together is the emergence of, of these very personally focused, not personalized, but personally focused risk engines. I'm constantly trying to remind folks that the amount of data that is collected you know, within every hour about us from, from this landscape of devices that we're surrounded with, like literally I'm sitting here looking at my Toyota pickup truck. My Toyota pickup truck right now is clocking idle time. Right. It knows when I'm using it and it knows when I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. And that is extremely powerful. Right. Because I could actually if you kind of extrapolate that, I could actually use that that signal um, associated with my pickup truck as part of an authentication scheme. Yeah. right. I can use you know, telemetry. I can use you know, the gyroscope. I always tell people, like, if I ever, you know, in these higher tiered types of solutions where we are measuring you know, very, very minute details about user behavior. If I ever authenticate my phone with my left hand with a thumbprint, somebody call the police because I'm probably dead in a, <laughs> in a, in a drainage ditch somewhere and somebody has my phone. Because the, the really interesting characteristic about human beings is, is that we are extremely ritual and habit bound.
0: Mm-hmm. And in
1: fact, when you ask the question about you know, being able to use the uh, user behaviors as uh, fraud discovery. The one thing that you find when you dig into uh, the actual results is, is that you don't, f- you don't find fraudsters using these user behavior elements because they're doing what they always do. In fact, fraudsters, <laughs> bad actors, actually you can find them because they're doing what they're not supposed to be doing right or they're doing something out of band or they're doing something anomalous and as we get more refined now here's the tension right how much of this and i've been having this conversation with jeremy and a bunch of other colleagues in the space like how much of this aggregation of this point data does it take to finally equal privacy issue right is it 5 points is it yeah, 8 yeah. points is it is it 10 and one of them is extremely you know vital like you know my you know my fitness tracker is measuring i still have a heartbeat <laughs> i don't I don't know the answer to those questions because, um, kind of back to your point, the space that we're working in today where these types of things are being leveraged is still relatively small, but growing rapidly, right? Because now, you know, with the catastrophic consequences to the financial system here in the US, unemployment benefits being ripped off, all this kind of stuff, you know, now everybody from the Hill on down to, you know, the smallest companies are going, Smallest companies are going, I didn't get a a, a PPP loan because fraudsters took out $6 billion worth of PPP loans.
0: Yeah, exactly. And
1: Yeah, yeah, so the the real consequences are starting to hit. So we're starting to see a lot of acceleration around, you know, how do we do this differently? The challenge is it takes a a massive change in thinking. Anyone on the trail has always heard me say this. All it really takes, (laughs) here's the easy button. All it really takes is, 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 putting a human being inside of the center of your information security architecture yeah. in, instead of a database.
0: Yeah, there you go. That's all it takes. Yep. Yep. That's all it takes. <laughs> so uh, a lot of companies uh, rely on single sign-on for uh, that, you know, requires a password vault. Uh, mm-hmm. It would seem like federated SSO is a much stronger alternative. Can you yeah. help our listeners understand a little bit about the difference and and how that works?
1: I think the way that I always like to say this is that, you know, SSO at its root has nothing to do with security, right? You know, SSO is is a ease of use functionality and productivity play. And when we look at, you know, the notion of federated SSO, we begin to introduce the notions of a unified authentication layer, you know, that we are applying a controls framework around Kind of that bolus of assembled information in that underlying SSO call, and I think that I always find this really interesting because I am shocked today. Mentioned two FA being a struggle for implementation still, let alone MFA SSO versus you know federated, and I, I'm shocked at how many companies, how many people I talk with where they still haven't gone on this journey, right? We were having these arguments in the corporate world in 2006.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, I think it's I, I not think new.
1: Yeah, and I think that we were, I think that we were pretty clear on the outcomes of the value of a unified authentication layer across a unified set of assembled accounts. And an SSO framework did yield inherent residual risk reduction. You know, so I don't think that there's much arguing left. About whether or not it yields better security results. Now, I'm going to be cautious here because, you know, the, I think one of the things that I've learned in being, you know, kind of this interesting personality within the identity spaces is that sometimes, as practitioners, we're our own worst enemies. Right? We go, well, you know what? Yeah, you're right. It does reduce some inherent residual risk, but you need to do this, this, and this. And I'll go back to what I said earlier. I've got people that I talked to that say that they're, they still haven't hygiene their Active Directory accounts. Yeah. You have to, you know, the, I think one of the big problems with the solution space in general is, is that the solution providers, and I'm saying, I was throwing shade on the solution industry that I'm now a part of. The, the solution providers simply do not remember that there is an obligation to meet their customer base where they're at. And they're not all going to be on the upper tier end of the journey right? Um, In fact, sadly, the percentage of folks that aren't in the middle tier of the journey is much larger than it should be.
0: Oh, that's huge. Huge. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you know, I think that the application of a unified authentication call against a group of sign-ons, you know, gets you both that ease of use, but it improves your security posture. And I think that's the critical difference.
0: Yeah. The data privacy folks have kind of gotten in the way as well, right? I mean, we don't we sort of, I don't know, we drink this elixir and we run off down this path and then somebody says, yeah, but what about privacy? And then we all, we screech to a halt and say, yeah, yeah, we've got to take care of that. And then all of a sudden we're back to nowhere, you know, <laughs> from my humble view. I, I would just like to mention on that. I, so I'm always a pragmatist, right? I look at outcomes.
1: When I get in those conversations where somebody wants to whittle at the stick uh, on, on privacy issues, my response is already, is always like, have you read the news lately? We saw, <laughs> like, like we are doing this very, very badly universally. And if we're going to try and solve for this specific point problem that you would like to argue about, can we take into account where the real, real world really is? The, the the losses, economic losses, continue to escalate. The hockey stick is going the wrong direction. Privacy is absolutely vital and important. But if you're not getting security right to begin with, the lack of privacy is a moot point. Yeah, exactly.
0: Right? That's right. Yeah. You're, you're on the board of the uh, Identity Defined Security Alliance, which I think promotes standards and best practices, or at least mm-hmm. attempts to, for securing yeah. our network. Uh, a key objective uh, in that, I, I think, is a drive toward a zero trust. Can you tell us a little bit about how that organization promotes the principles and yeah. technologies that can be leveraged?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've been affiliated with IDSA for, I'm trying to remember how long I've known Julie and and, and since she took that. And I'm always proud of the fact that just like almost every other standards body related to identity, Ping was a founder for IDSA. And we saw a world where we could have a team of rivals come to the table for something other than the next ISO response period, right? Right. Yeah, or the next the next NIST reply. We're like, you know, there's there's a lot of problems that need to get answered relative to operationalization. You know, you start going over the latest ISO specs. You know, with a customer, they're going to gloss over right instantaneously. Yeah. Um, if you come in from an, a best practices standpoint and say, "Look, like we here's this great group of vendors, everybody from." you know, Unikin to SailPoint, to Okta, to CyberArk, us and, and the experiences that we have, you know, seeing across this landscape of every type of implementation you can possibly see, like, here is how this particular industry segment or this particular, uh, when Den Jones was uh, and still with us when he was at Adobe, like here's how Adobe did it, right? Mm-hmm. Those Pieces of information coming from a group of—I mean, frankly—a group of competitors that have come together to say, "If we don't fix these things, it doesn't matter if you buy our solution or not." Yeah, right. right. Our solution will not fix your problems miraculously without you addressing. In in the case of zero trust, right? If you don't have a planful strategy to execute on zero trust, that's inclusive of, you know, taking. You know, taking a stepwise process, right? I always tell people if you're still doing account and password, you can't get from here to there. (laughs) You can't get from account to pass and password to zero trust. It will not happen. Right. You know, so laying out maps, guides, frameworks that are operationally oriented and associated to again this reality we talked about at the top of the call, which is, you know, it is an app-driven world. But frankly, you know, 5G drops, and it'll be less of a network-driven world than we'll ever have been in. Yeah, right? That's it, true.
0: That's true. Yeah, yeah.
1: It'll be an app functionality-driven world. And and I know the other thing that you mentioned at the top, you know, this notion that identity is a new perimeter. I think that when 5G drops, we are going to move into a world where everything from a identity standpoint is at the edge, right? Everything will manifest with CPU and data in a yeah. handheld device and Tons of transactions will actually be committed locally, and that's gonna change our entire thinking again on how to manage you know, against a zero-trust environment.
0: Yeah, isn't that frightening? Oh, so it's, it's either
1: frightening or it's career longevity. Um, yeah. I'll go with- <laughs> well, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the career longevity is built in already. <laughs> true, mm-hmm. very true. So, so final question here, Richard, and I'm conscious of the time here. Um, you, you, you've got a background in education, you're also a member of the 82nd Airborne, mm-hmm. which is a little weird. And you were, I think it was eight years or something. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And so I'd, I'd, we're, you know, shameless plug here. We're about to launch a, you know, very serious strategic initiative that is going to provide the best online education and training experience for CISOs and cyber warriors. We create all, curate all of that coursework through a faculty advisory board of CISOs who Teach at leading universities, many of them you know. Give our listen is your take on what you learned from jumping out of airplanes, <laughs> and how you think we can we can close the supply and demand gap in cybersecurity.
1: Well, I, you know, I think that first and foremost, the the two lessons that I learned in my military career, and jumping out of airplanes, will enforce them beyond belief. Uh, <laughs> that I think that I think are absolutely critical for companies to succeed. I firmly believe we need to stop being in the mindset that it's not a matter of, 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 it, of if, it's a matter of when. It's it a losing mentality, right? We don't have a lot of fight in us against the bad guys, which is kind of critical in the military. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. And, and we create these self-fulfilling prophecies of, you know, this, this attack on us and we need to fight to win. But that's not the lesson. There were two things that I learned. The first is, is intellectual honesty is absolutely necessary. So in the case of, of the learnings and, and, you know, the ability to teach people that, that you guys are embarked on, you know, it, it's like the old AA thing, right? Which doesn't stand for uh, all Americans, uh, which is the 82nd level, but Alcoholics Anonymous, which is you have to admit that you got a problem, right? You have to have the intellectual honesty to say, I need to know more in order to be able to do more. So that intellectual honesty is absolutely necessary. But the second that is probably more important than all quickly bore you with a foxhole story. Um, A friend of mine was a range officer and I was on a firing line, you know, he's still in charge, but we're, we're kind of chewing the fat in between shooting rounds. And uh, he comes up to me and he goes, "Hey, Hey bird, do you know who the most dangerous person, you know, on the battlefield is? And I was like the enemy. And he goes, no, he says the most dangerous person on the battlefield is the guy that's in your foxhole that doesn't have his weapon on safe is paying no attention, jumps under the foxhole and blows your head off. <laughs> right. And, and I should mention, I can always draw a parallel professionally. Uh, I think it's important to note that the uh, Verizon DBI are once again, mentioned that about 30% of breaches are self-inflicted.
0: <laughs> yeah, <no kidding. laughs> um,
1: But the lesson there is situational awareness. And I do think that companies today sometimes forget the need for situational awareness and we do it in surges, right? So JBS gets popped and colonial gets popped. Now all of a sudden everyone has situational awareness and you know exactly what happens Steve, right? Like every, every information security shop in the country got a phone call from some CEO going, are we safe on this stuff? I need to go check all this stuff, right? That's not situational awareness, right? That's reactive. uh, That's reactive action. But yeah, I mean, I think those pieces now, as far as filling the gap from an information security standpoint, you know, I'm of an age where I saw the first university programs come online, you know, where there were established cybersecurity programs. It is very obvious, though, that academia was late in acknowledging the needs of those particular types of resources and in higher ed. And I do think that we are seeing a quick pickup in the technical school space But I've always been, you know, being a graduate in international relations theory with a minor in Japanese language from too far in the past that I care to acknowledge, I've always been a strong advocate for capability and potential. And we need, as a practitioner body, we need to start start acknowledging that we already know the personality traits and characteristics, the work ethic traits and characteristics, of great analysts, of you know great network engineers, security engineers, we know what that looks like from a behavioral pattern standpoint. And I think that the only way we stand a fighting chance of beginning to fill in, you know, what is it, two years from now, four point seven million dollars, uh, four point seven million uh, unfilled jobs in information security. Yep. Um, you know, we're we're going to need to. This sounds like I'm dehumanizing, but buy to build, right? And and buy to build based on the right characteristics and right potential, and invest our time in you know the necessary apprenticing, and acknowledge that there are more than one pathway. Uh, there's more than one pathway educationally to get to cybersecurity.
0: Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right, and it's so fragmented today. It feels like we don't, you know, there's no sort of north star here, um, or at least. No. Uh, common, uh, Commonly acknowledged, at, at, at least. So, Agreed. well, look, um, I, I wanted to stop this at 30. We're uh, a little bit over. I do want to thank you, though, Richard. This was great. And I know you've got a crazy schedule. So, I, I really <laughs> appreciate you taking the time to to join me here today. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Let's do it again. Will do. All right. Thanks, Richard. And thank you to our listeners for joining us in another episode of Cyber Theories. Exploration into the complex world of cybersecurity, technology, and digital realities. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, signing out. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at CyberTheory, or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.